Gillum. Welcome to Fab NYC's podcast, Artwork, about how art works in the world. This episode has been created by Native Art Department International, a collaborative long-term project created and administered by Maria Hupfield and Jason Lujan. As artists in residence with 4th Arts Block and Downtown Art, during the first six months of 2018, Native Art Department International conducted three interviews with people each with deep histories and connections to the Lower East Side. This interview is with Dave Powell, Executive Director of Cooper Square Mutual Housing Association. The Cooper Square MHA is committed to the preservation and development of tenant-controlled and cooperatively owned affordable housing. In addition to serving as a nonprofit affordable housing manager, developer, and owner, the Cooper Square MHA works in coalition with other groups to promote the preservation and development of affordable housing throughout the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Okay, so, hi, this is Jason with Native Art Department International. I'm speaking to Dave Powell, who I've known for several years. And Dave, do you live downtown? I don't. I live in Brooklyn, actually. Oh, you live in Brooklyn, too. What part um, of Brooklyn? In Greenpoint. Okay. Um, but I mostly know you from downtown, um, Lower East Side, and I know that your current occupation, you work across the street from downtown art space. Yep. Um, you're the, currently the executive director of the Cooper Square Mutual Housing Association. Uh, can you do me a favor and explain that model and exactly what it is that you do in there as both in, in your occupation but also as an organization? Sure. So there's some, like all things, there's a little bit of history behind that. Um, the Cooper Square Mutual Housing Association is essentially, it's an independent organization, but it is, uh, was birthed, if you will, from the Cooper Square Committee, uh, which was founded in 1959, um, pretty much across the street, to oppose uh, what was then a Robert Moses urban renewal plan to literally wipe the neighborhood off the map. Um, there was actually a committee of the city at the time called the Slum Clearance Commission and uh, run by Robert Moses. And their plan was to basically level every building between 9th Street and Delancey Street between 2nd Avenue and the Bowery and build new uh, middle-income housing. And uh, a group of residents formed to oppose that, which had happened many times in New York City's history, opposing Robert Moses's uh, annihilation of, of various communities, as indeed it happened across the United States when urban renewal plans were attempted and mostly successfully implemented. Um, but the thing I think that distinguished the Cooper Square Committee and this group of residents is that they not only said, no, we don't want this, they actually kind of flipped the script a little bit and said, we want urban renewal, but we want it to, I'm, gonna, I'm paraphrasing Francis Golden, the, the founder, one of the co-founders of Cooper Square Committee, we want urban renewal, but we want it to, benef to, be, to be a benefit uh, and not to victimize the residents that live here already. And so what they did is they came up with an alternate plan to the city's plan, which imagined them as the primary beneficiaries and, in fact, figured out a kind of checkerboarding scheme where housing would be renovated or, or built anew and that people would be moved from one block to another and never displaced from, from their neighborhood. And on a granular level, like on a household level, not like, oh, you'll get into a housing lottery or, oh, you'll get a chance to apply for public housing, but no, like we will actually track you and, and you will not be displaced. 
And um, it's sad to say that to this day, that remains a kind of radical concept in New York City. It's not something that the city has really embraced, even though it likes to, you know, its city planning department likes to posit itself as progressively. So the, the Cooper Square Committee is actually the longest running community-based anti-displacement organization in the United States. Uh, are you aware of any, are there any others elsewhere that you've heard about or, or worked with or shared resources with? Well, I've been involved and I sort of come to this work as, uh, you know, part of the tenant movement, you know, since the 1990s. So I'm aware of many groups, you know, in, in Lower East Side, for example, you've got goals, good old Lower East Side, which I believe started in the 1970s, you know. Um, I actually was originally an organizer with the Metropolitan Council on Housing, which was actually co-founded in 1959 by Francis Golden at the same time Cooper Square Committee was founded along with Jane Benedict and maybe Jackson and others. But um, I think I think the claim... Uh, of being the longest local, locally based, um, you know, community based anti displacement organization is I, I I can't contradict it. You know what I mean? Like it's definitely uh, they've definitely been at it for a long time, longer than any other community based group that I know uh, in the tenant movement in New York City. And um, we're the we're our organization, the Cooper Square Mutual Housing Association, comes in is that um, the after fighting the city for over 10 years, the city finally relented and said to the Cooper Square Committee, we will implement your plan. But right about that same time, Richard Nixon canceled public housing as a program, as a proactively building program. And the city was in a state of financial crisis. So the plan lingered on the vine. And then by the 1980s, the, the, the community realized that they needed to focus on preserving the housing that existing, existed here and that the tools to build new housing were limited uh, and almost non-existent. So they shifted their focus from proactively building up the neighborhood in a kind of urban renewal mode to preserving the occupied housing um, and renovating that housing and forming a co-op that would not just be a one-building, you know, standalone co-op, which had kind of been the model, um, but instead having kind of like a federation of co-ops into a, a mutual housing association. And a big problem we've had in New York City historically is that we actually have a really robust history of um, low or limited equity, limited income co-op programs. You know, you have the unions built co-ops, you know, for, you know, 100 years ago and up, up until the 1960s. You had the Mitchell-Lama program. You had in, on the Lower East Side and the Bronx and Harlem and many other neighborhoods, buildings where there was a lot of, um, in neighborhoods where there was a lot of abandonment during the 1970s. Tenants became the owners in the so-called Till program or the HDFC program. Um, and, uh, you know, you have a lot of this legacy of, of these programs, but the one Achilles heel that they've all had is that they usually allow the co-op, the co-operators, as they're sometimes called, the shareholders, to go private at some point. So there's like a 20-year or 30-year or 40-year opt-out period. And so what often happens, and we saw this a lot on the Lower East Side, is that the first generation realizes the benefit, realizes the windfall, and then, and then is able to sell. Um, and, and, and they get profit from that. And it might benefit the individual family, but the community loses the resource that it struggled so hard to get. So the Cooper Square Committee um, 
you know, after struggling for decades, said, we don't just want this to be, you know, the cycle with our housing. Having fought so hard for it and having had so much public money and resource go into it, we want this to be a durable resource for the next generation and beyond. So they came up with the innovation taken from other organizations in the United States and and different parts of the world to have a community land trust own the land underneath the housing and for that to be an independent body um, controlled by neighborhood people who had an interest in keeping the resource in the community, but to have the housing itself, the buildings, controlled by the shareholders in a mutual housing association. So the two organizations are inextricably linked. They have overlap in their board membership, but the CLT, the, as we call it, the Community Land Trust, is basically, you know, kind of a watchdog organization. In the event that the shareholders decide, like, we want to privatize, we want to sell out, and and have this become market rate housing, the CLT, um, by virtue of owning the land and disaggregating it from the buildings, uh, is in a position to stop that. Uh, when you're thinking about the Cooper Square model, quote unquote, or community land trust in general, like it's not a panacea, you know, and it is, it can be limiting. It's important for us to have these safe harbors, right? But they can't be the extent of our, of our movement or of our activism, because then you can fall into the same trap that government falls into, which is like, so just to critique, you know, like Bill de Blasio and Michael Bloomberg in the same sentence, which is unfortunately not hard to do when it comes to some of these issues. You know, both of them made this critical mistake um, which, unfortunately, I think a lot of people have been uh, confused by, which is that you have an affordable housing plan. You have a goal. You know, in in, in Bloomberg's case, it was 165,000 units. In De Blasio's case, I think it was 200,000 initially. You know, he's upped it to 300,000. Whatever the number is, the idea is you're building or you're preserving this many units of affordable housing. Okay. So let's unpack that for a minute. So affordable to whom? What does that mean, right? This is a totally relative term, right? You're not talking about low-income housing, which does have an actual definition. You know, you're talking about affordable housing. So who who are we targeting? Which households are we giving relief to, you know, in this? But moreover, what's not being taken on board is the loss of housing in our communities that has been an affordable resource, in some ways an organic, you know, even market-based affordable resource, uh, you know, for generations. So how many units of, if you want to get, just get into numbers, and they tend to fixate on numbers, and we should pay attention to those numbers, but if you want to get, in, get into numbers, like how many units of rent-stabilized housing have we lost during that time? You know, how many units of public housing have... Um, gone into states of disrepair and like driven families out because of the poor conditions. How many, you know, talking about the other subsidy programs, Project Based Section 8, Mitchell Lama, how many of those units have privatized, you know, because they have opt out periods and so on and so forth. So the problem is that, you know, the tenant movement always contended, for example, with Bloomberg when he said, oh, I'm creating or, you know, preserving 165,000 units. Our thing was, yeah, but at the same time, you presided over a city and you instigated rezonings, which initiated or, you know, actually took away probably twice as many units of affordable housing, like deeply affordable housing from people who have, in some cases, intergenerational connections to those neighborhoods and that housing, right? So the first thing is that 
you know, people matter, right? Families matter, communities matter. It's not just enough to be like, we're creating units. You know, it's like, who are you creating them for? Who benefits? What's the ability of a family? And, and what's the, the loss? Um, and right? then the other part of that is like, do the math, right? What's right. the loss? Right. So getting back to the, the community land trust model, or for that matter, the community development corporation model, which, you know, like we have a lot of, I used to work for an organization in Brooklyn called the Fifth Avenue Committee, you know, and we have uh, Fifth Avenue Committee had, you know, has, you know, 400 plus units of um, actually, you know, fairly, fairly robustly affordable housing. Um, but, you know, again, any one of these strategies, these safe harbor strategies don't necessarily address, you know, like fundamentally the right to housing, like the right to shelter, you know, in the United States, you know. And so, uh, you know, I mean, it kind of gets back to that. It's like you can create these islands, but what's the, what's the larger landscape, you know, and, and, and what's the, what's the real impact of of displacement upon our communities, upon our people, upon our families, upon ourselves, you know? And I think this issue that you raise of like, so what will the, and then, so that's my sort of one piece of it is like, you know, if I were given an opportunity to talk to other communities, and it's interesting because actually Cooper Square has kind of been studied in both in New York and other states, people are coming to us and being like, how'd you do what you did? So, I mean, the first thing I would say, you know, is that we're not a substitute for this larger fight, you know, for like tenant rights, for example, or community rights, you know, people's rights to the land, people's rights to shelter, people's rights against displacement. And, you know, like if I were in a city that didn't have rent regulation, I would say, hey, maybe you don't want a community land trust. Maybe what we want is like, you know, rent regulation. Maybe what you want is to elect like pro-city you know, pro-tenant city council members and take over the city council so that you're not, you know, so the landlords don't have all the power in your city, you know. It, I think it's, it really depends on what your city or what your community is going through. Um, but there's definitely, that, um, there's definitely that trap of, you know, becoming an island and not, not um, you know, leaving the rest of the neighborhood behind. And in fact, we actually have, you know, um, Frances Fox Piven is interviewed in our, in our film and she actually has a great soundbite which I won't, I won't get perfect but she basically says you know, there's two ways to look at the Cooper Square story you know? one is that a community held at bay the global forces of real estate to survive and thrive you know, defied gravity you know, and is here today to, to tell the tale right? and then the other side of the story is that it took such enormous time and resources to do that. And in the end, the rest of the immediate surrounding neighborhood, you know, particularly like west of Avenue A, did gentrify, you know. People were displaced, you know, and, and are continuously being displaced. This is a contemporary process. I mean, it's kind of, you know, the American process, right? It, it is. I think people confuse it with a dialectic. It's not, it's not really a dialectic. <laughs> right, right, right. This is Ryan Gillum for Artwork, the Fab NYC podcast about how art works in the world. This episode was created by Native Art Department International, a collaborative project of artists Maria Hupfield and Jason Luhan. More artwork podcasts can be found on our website at www.fabnyc.org or on iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify. Thanks to Michael Hickey and the Fab NYC staff. And as always, our appreciation to the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs, New York City Department of Small Business Services, City Council Member Carlina Rivera, 
New York State Council on the Arts, and Con Edison for supporting Fab NYC programs. Thanks for listening.